I want us to open up to Colossians chapter 1. As you've heard me state over the last few weeks, the overarching theme throughout Paul's letter to the Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. The recipients of the letter were mostly Gentiles. And like most of the Gentile world during the first century, prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the Colossians were probably steeped in what we would refer to as Greco-Roman philosophy and religion. Greco meaning Greek, Roman obviously meaning Roman, kind of a combination of that. And Greco-Roman religion was both polytheistic, meaning multiple gods, But it was also very inclusive, meaning they incorporated a lot of other types of religions into their Greek and Roman, oh, they refer to it actually as a cult. They had their primary Greek and Roman gods. How many of you are familiar with the Parthenon? There's a replica of it on the campus of, I think it's University of Tennessee. When I was in college, I was taking a course in Greek mythology, and we were heading down to Florida for some spring break and got a chance to stop by the Parthenon, and so we walked in there, and they have all their statues of all their different Greek gods. That was the traditional Roman and Greek religion, gods like Zeus and others. But there's another side to it that's often overlooked, and it's that they were fascinated with mystery religions. You remember when Paul went into Athens and one of the things that he had seen was a statue um, that said to the unknown God. And they like to kind of cover all of their bases is the best way to describe it. And so they were very interested in what was referred to as mystery religions. These mystery religions were common among the philosophers and the religious elite of the day. They loved to debate these things. There were all kinds of mystical practices and beliefs involved with all of that. And so this Greco-Roman culture and religion was this hodgepodge of things. It was a a mix of all kinds of different ideas that had been brought in from all these different cultures. And so that's likely what these Colossians were accustomed to. Now many of these mystery religions offered all kinds of hidden secret knowledge about God and about the universe and about um, all the stuff that was around us, how you understand the world. In fact, many of them were kind of these... um, private groups that you would have to sign up for and become members of, you know, I think like Freemasons. You know, they have all this secret hidden knowledge that you can only get if you become part of the club, you know. And so that's really what these Colossians were accustomed to. Now the reason this is important is because this religion was very eclectic. It derived itself from a wide range of these diverse beliefs and stuff. And so you can imagine that after coming to Christ why the Colossians might sort of struggle a little bit within that culture and society in understanding their own newfound faith in Jesus Christ. I remember when I was saved, I had been raised Catholic. And for the first couple of years of my Christian life, I had to sort through all the things that I had learned in the Catholic Church and kind of determine what was right and what was wrong and what was good and what was bad. And I remember it took me about two years to sort of sort through that. I've often referred to myself as a recovering Catholic. You know, and so oftentimes that's the way it is. You know, when, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you know everything there is to know about Jesus, everything there is to know about God, and that you forget all those other things that you learned that impacted you. And sometimes you have to unlearn those things. But there's also this interesting phenomenon that I've seen within the Christian church, is that oftentimes somebody comes to faith in Christ... 
And then as they grow and mature a little bit, all of a sudden sometimes they start to fall back into some of those old habits and religious patterns. And it appears that's what was happening with these Colossians. They had come to faith in Christ, but now were being challenged to go back to, in some respects, some of those mystical practices and some of those other things that were popular and common among their culture and society. And we don't know if it's because false teachers had come into the church and were challenging them. That's probably the reality. We know that every place that Paul went, Jews would follow him, try to indoctrinate the new believers try to hook them back on the law. So we don't know if that's what was happening here. We just know that they were being tempted to walk away, in some respects, from faith alone in Christ and sort of have a newfound faith, which is Jesus plus all these other things. And the problem with that is that would take them captive. Now, what's interesting about some of this is within... Um, these circles, if you will, in Greco-Roman circles, the word mystery was extremely important to them. Words like knowledge, and especially things like full knowledge or um, complete knowledge, those were trigger words. Those were important words to them. They were used within the culture and society. And Paul uses some of that today. And he's going to use these words, he's going to use some of their language and sort of turn it on its head. And one of the words he uses is the word mystery. And so today, if you, when we go through the text, you're going to see that Paul refers to the mystery of Christ. And he's doing that very deliberately because that would have been something that would have caused their ears to perk up because mysteries were important to them. And so Paul's going to say, you want to know about mysteries? You want to know full truth? You want to know real truth? Which are, again, important words for them. He's like, let me tell you about God's greatest mystery. Let me tell you about real knowledge and real wisdom and real truth. And that would have caused them to sort of pay attention, want to know what Paul was talking about. And so in our passage today, Paul's going to take advantage of some of that language. He's going to turn it on its head and he's going to bring them back to the greatest mystery of all, which was Jesus Christ and God's redemptive plan. So he repeats the word mystery multiple times. He refers to things that have been hidden or kept secret. He's going to refer to that. He talks not just of knowledge, but all the wealth of knowledge, the full assurance of understanding, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of these things are important key words that Paul uses that would have been important to them. Much like when he went into Athens and he said, I see they've got this statue here, the unknown God. I'm going to use that to my advantage. That's what he says. Let me tell you about this unknown God. Now he's got their attention. Paul's going to do the same thing today. In essence, he says this, Since you're fascinated with mysteries and you're enamored with great wisdom and knowledge, look no further than God's greatest mystery, Jesus Christ, in whom are found all of the treasures and the wisdom of knowledge that you're seeking. So that'll be what Paul is going to do today. One of the things that stands out in this passage is the lengths to which Paul went to make this mystery known. I really struggled with this passage. In fact, after about 15 to 20 hours of working on it, I scrapped it threw it away. And it's just because I was having trouble with what I call the packaging. How do I boil this stuff down? As you go through this book, we could spend a week on almost every verse because there's so much theology in it. And so you kind of have to boil all that down. My wife said, it's like making syrup. You know, you start with... Our friend Dave Baton makes syrup, and we always get our syrup from him. And he starts with, you know, 50 gallons of sap, and he comes out with one small jar, you know. So my, you know, my wife says, you have to boil that, that down. And 
So that's the challenge of all this. And what I finally decided to do was Paul, three times in this passage, talks about the struggles or the difficulties that he has for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to use that as the outline today. So we're going to do this. Paul suffered for the mystery of the gospel because in Christ... All mankind has the hope of glory. So Paul struggled for the mystery of Christ because in Christ all mankind has the hope of glory. That's our first point. The second point is going to be that Paul labored for the mystery of Christ because in Christ we are all made perfect. And then lastly, Paul says that he struggled mightily. So you end up with these three words. He suffered, he labored, he struggled. All for the mystery of the gospel. And so the third thing is he struggled mightily for the mystery of Christ because in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we're going to read through this here. Let's start at verse 24. We're going to read, read um, just a small section of this. But Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. We'll read our passage for this morning. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking... In Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, pro- we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. For I want you all to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that none of you will be deluded with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability, stability of your faith in Christ. Let's look at the first part. Notice that right out of the gate, back to verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The first thing we see here is that Paul suffered for the sake of this mystery of Christ because he was convinced that all mankind has the hope of glory in Christ. Paul began by reminding the Colossians that He suffered for this. He was willing to put it all on the line. Now all of you know that Paul was no stranger to suffering. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul catalogs his suffering that he went through for the sake of this mystery. He says, Are all servants of Christ? Verse 23. I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Can you imagine that? Not being able to remember the number of times you had been beaten for the sake of the gospel? Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. 
I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, even without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That was Paul's life. And yet here in verse 24 of Colossians 1, he says, I rejoice in those sufferings. Paul refers here to his sufferings as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh. Isn't that a rather strange statement? It makes you wonder, well, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Paul is not saying here that there was something missing with Christ, that Christ didn't suffer enough. The word refers to something that is essential or something that is needed. And that is probably a better rendering of this. And essentially what Paul is saying here is that he has taken on what was necessary in joining Christ in his suffering. If you remember, when Paul was saved, do you remember what Jesus said to Ananias? He says, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer For my name's sake. Paul took that to heart. And so in essence, what Paul is saying here is that it was necessary for him to suffer to fulfill what God had asked him to do. It was a requirement and Paul rejoiced in that. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Jump down to verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all rubbish so that I might gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own delivered from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his, or being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saw his sufferings that he faced because of the mystery of the gospel as a necessity in his life. How many of us think about that? Have you ever thought that it might be necessary for us to suffer too in order to be conformed to Christ? That's the reality. That's why Peter spends two whole books on it. We don't like that. <laughs> you know, we think, gee, let's hope for the rapture to take us out of here so we don't have to suffer. None of us wants to. <clears throat> but Paul says here that he rejoiced in his sufferings. He said he did his share in his own body to fill up what was necessary, what was needed in the sufferings of Christ. Now, why did Paul do that? Why would he be willing to suffer such things? We find that in verse 25. Look at what he says. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, a stewardship is simply a mission or a task, but it's generally one that requires some type of oversight, organization, and responsibility. And the reason that's important is, think about maybe like your job, for instance. It's not just a task you carry out. Your job requires that you pay attention and that you organize and that you take certain steps. And and that's the way Paul looked at this, was that God had assigned to him this stewardship. It wasn't just 
a task. It wasn't just a job. It was something that would require him investing time and energy and organization and planning. And we see that with Paul. When he would set out a missionary journey, he would have a plan of where he was going and what he wanted to do. And now sometimes God intervened and said, no, I know you want to go to Rome, but sorry, you're not going to Rome right now. But Paul always had a plan and something. He organized, he he was strategic in what he did to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he had this stewardship. But you notice what this stewardship really ultimately was. I'm going to depart from most of your English translations right now. At the end of verse 25, the New American Standard and much of your translations probably say something like, that I might fully carry out the preaching or the teaching or the declaration of the word of God. But those words are in italics in the New American Standard and in many of your Bibles they might very well be and that's because they're supplied a more literal rendering of that is that I might fully carry out the word of God now I think that's important because Paul wasn't just called to preach the gospel he was called to fulfill the word of God and what might that be he obviously was a preacher he was to declare the word of God but it was to bring about the fulfillment of God's word. If you remember the Great Commission, or not the Great Commission, Jesus, before he ascended, he told his apostles, as part of the Great Commission, that they were to preach the gospel where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. The fulfillment of the gospel is when it goes to the Gentiles and completes God's purpose and plan, his redemption plan. And so Paul saw his ministry, not just simply as going out there and sharing the gospel, but rather fulfilling God's redemptive plan, fulfilling the word of God. Now, obviously, the bulk of that was in preaching and declaring the word of God. But again, it goes beyond just simply preaching. Paul saw himself as completing or being a part of God completing his word. And that's what he did. Look at verses 26 and 27. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. That was a shocking thing for many during that day because from a Jewish perspective, Gentiles weren't included in God's redemptive plan. You and I sit... How many of you have Jewish blood? Nobody? You maybe a little bit, you know? You're half saved? So, we are here today because God saw fit to reveal the mystery of Christ among us. And Paul saw that as a fulfillment of God's word. And so he rejoiced in his sufferings because he looked at God as giving him this stewardship to help him complete the word of God, which is to bring the Gentiles the good news of Jesus Christ and reveal this mystery among them. You and I are here today because of what God did through the Apostle Paul. It's interesting. When you think about what the scriptures teach us, this mystery here is Christ himself. It's not just the gospel. You look at chapter 2, verse 2, it says that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in, what, a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. So we've got this nuance going on here. The mystery is the gospel, God's redemptive plan, but the mystery is of itself Christ as well. There's this double nuance happening there. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. 
praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Christ is the mystery. Not shocking. Jesus Christ, we're told in John 1.1, 1, 1, was the word, and the word came in flesh. He was God, come in flesh. That was a mystery. The Old Testament wasn't abundantly clear, if you will, on exactly what would be involved with the coming of the Messiah and God coming in flesh and Jesus Christ revealing the mysteries of God to us through himself. Now there is another aspect to this mystery and it kind of brings this point finally to the forefront. Look at the very last phrase of verse 27 which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, it's oftentimes said that when you think about the gospel, we like to turn to places like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where we've been saved by grace, through faith, not of your own works. So often if you ask me, summarize the gospel for me, it's that we are saved by grace through faith, right? I think this is probably a better description of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It goes far beyond just faith in Christ. It tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, He then takes up residence in us. That is the true essence of salvation. Elsewhere, Paul says, he challenged some of his readers to test themselves to see if they were in the faith and reminds them it all comes down to one thing. Is Christ in you? You want to talk to somebody about the gospel, you talk to somebody who maybe is, claims to be saved, ultimately what determines that is not what they believe, but whether or not Christ is in them. Do you have Christ? Is Christ in you? That's the test. You can say I'm a believer, you can say I'm a Catholic, you can say I'm a Lutheran, you can say I'm a Baptist, but what it really comes down to is Christ in you. That's the bottom line. That's the gospel. That's the great mystery you can, you can scour the Old Testament and it's hard to really, by just the Old Testament alone, understand that what would happen in salvation is that God himself would come down and dwell within us. That is a radical thought. But that's the gospel. That's the mystery of Christ. I think this last part of verse 27 is the most important of everything Paul has said here so far. It's Christ in you. I love the way the NIV renders this. It talks about the glorious mysteries, I'm sorry, the glorious riches of the mystery of Christ. Go back to verse 27 again. God willed to make known what is the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles. You notice there's some wordplay going on here? Paul talks about these glorious riches, which is what? Our glory. Christ in you your hope of glory. So he uses this word as kind of a, a word play. The glorious riches of this mystery of Christ is the fact that because Christ is in us, we now have the hope of glory. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 9 through 11. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. However, you are... Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
He does not belong to him. So we're, what we're looking at here, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is Christ in us. It says in 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? Your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. That's speaking of our glorification, giving life to our mortal bodies. Now jump to verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be what? Glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of what? Of the glory of the children of God. Now, finally, jump down to verse 28. And we know that God calls us all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among the brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, look at this, he also glorified. Folks, because Christ lives in us, we have hope for glory. Colossians chapter 3, just listen to these. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4. And when Christ, the shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Romans, we just saw here in verses 16 and 18. It says that we may be glorified with him. What's our takeaway with all that? Paul was not only willing but rejoiced in the horrendous suffering that he did because he was convinced that our hope of glory rested in the fact that Christ is in us. And in the context of this letter, the Colossians were starting to forget that. They were looking to other things. And he's like, no, your hope of glory rests in one thing. Christ is in you, the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you. Move on to a second point. Paul labored for the mystery of Christ because in Christ we are made perfect. One of the great pursuits of man-made religion is the hope and the desire to overcome this material world. You know, there's usually some type of motive that we can ascend or we can overcome or whatever. I've got a cousin of mine that I'm going to read you something from her website because it's all about world religions and man-made religions to try to somehow overcome this. And I share this only because I think much of this would be very symbolic of the Colossians and what the Greco-Roman culture may have believed as well. But this is from her website. Let's see here. It says, um, and this is a description, I've paraphrased parts of it, but it says, she calls herself a world-renowned master sacred shaman and a messenger of the ascended masters, the beings of light. By utilizing the ancient ways of the Incas and the Tibetan Buddhists, she works with the masterful 
celestial beings on the other side to teach people how to work with these beings to supercharge their own journey into their authentic self. She was raised Catholic, but soon found there were more than Jesus and Mary. There are these masterful beings like angels and archangels and Buddhas and I can't even pronounce the next word. And celestial beings who are available to help us get out of the mess and the chaos here on earth. Many of these beings of light had lived on this planet and found their way out. And they're here to teach us how we can find our way out. These masterful beings provide a road map to get out of the craziness of this planet by teaching you who you really are, where you came from, how you got into this mess, and how to get out of it. In order to become truly free. In addition to specializing in the energy medicine tradition of the Incas, she's deepened her shamanic skills and healing abilities with modern avant-garde methods like matrix energetics, Yoon method and energetics, theta healing, relational life therapy, etc. Through these celestial beings of pure light, she has learned that Earth is a schoolroom and we can get tested on what we learn. Every time you pass a test, instead of earning a grade, you receive more light and more energy to work with. Then you get tested again and the process continues until you graduate from this planet. That's the pursuit of religion. Maybe not that quirky and weird, but that's the pursuit. The desire to escape sin and corruption in the world is not a bad thing. Imperfections and limitations we face. I think we'd all love to escape those things, wouldn't we? Even the Apostle Paul said, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do calls himself a wretched man, but then he ultimately points to Christ who can save him from that. Not such things as elevated celestial beings. But it's interesting in the context of the letter here, and we'll see this in just a moment, but a little bit later, we'll cover this, I don't know if it's next week, Paul says that these things that they were trying to do to overcome didn't protect them against indulgences of the flesh. They do nothing to protect us from sin or to help us control unwanted behavior etc we'll spend more time on that passage a little later but the Colossians were looking for ways to overcome this world in fact one of the things we know we we suspect that they were involved with a form of pre-Gnosticism and one of the things the Gnostics believed was that in order to ascend spiritually and grow spiritually you had to sort of conquer the flesh and while there is an element of Christian truth that Yes, we should learn to not behave inappropriately. We should learn to not live by the lust of our flesh. They did this weird kind of practice and stuff like that to try to overcome the flesh. And so Paul mentions in the letter here they would um, treat their bodies poorly. There was a basement to their body and some other things that they did. Um, And so they were involved in some of these practices to try to ascend, if you will, to move beyond this. And so in their head they were thinking, well, maybe it's good to start with Christ, but... All these other things are necessary still to deal with the flesh and to overcome that. And Paul had other things to say about that. It reminds me of this Amish man, I think of Sher- not Amish, but an old order German uh, Baptist that uh, I met when I was in seminary. Um, he worked at the newspaper, and he looked like Amish, just the same way the Amish did. Um, lived very much like the Amish, but they had some things that they were able to do, like they could drive vehicles, they could use electricity. And um, he showed up one time, with a car and a new car that he had. Not, it wasn't new, it was an old, but it had chrome bumpers on it. And I knew that they weren't supposed to have chrome bumpers because he had chaired there. They said, hey, dude, you're sinning. And he kind of laughed and he said, yeah, the elders approached me on that. I've got to get some paint and paint over those bumpers because you can't have chrome. And it wasn't because it reflected things because they had no problem with cameras. It's because it, you know, it was a little rich looking. It would cause envy. 
you know. And so we, we chatted about that one time, and he would tell me these different stories about the different rules and regulations they had. Like he was, had a beautiful voice and he played guitar, but he had to give that up when he turned 18 because you couldn't be in the church if you played an instrument, right? So I asked him one day outright, I said, you know, I don't get this. I said, so you got all these rules and regulations. And, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I said, the question I have for you is, does that really prevent you from sinning? And he kind of got the smile on his face and he goes, nah, we just find new ways to sin. And I thought, that is really telling, you know? And so then he, from there he started to tell me, he goes, this is kind of like this. He said, you know, a few years back, they had this national conference every year. They go out to California. There's only about 500 of them in the nation of these old order German Baptists, apparently. And he said, we all go out to California. And he goes, every year there's some sin we have to address. And we have councils on it and discussions on it and everything. And then we make a ruling on it. And so one year he told me, he said, it was our hats. Because some of the men started to wear derby hats. I'm like, what is a derby hat? He goes, well, it's a different brim on the hat. And he goes, so these guys started all buying derby hats. And he said, they're real stylish. And he's like, so the convention was about addressing derby hats. And so we had all these councils and we finally realized, you know, ruled men cannot wear derby hats. All the hats had to be the same. He said, and then the next year it was women water skiing. He's like, because it became fairly popular for people to start buying boats and the girls would go out water skiing and they would wear their dresses and then the dresses would get wet. And so, you know, the whole thing was about whether or not women should be water skiing. And so we ruled that no, women shouldn't be water skiing. And and the way he was describing it to me, you could even see that he was somewhat frustrated with it because he's like, none of this stuff really protects us. Every year it's some new sin we have to address. Every, you know, and, he, and that's the nature of this. And so when Paul is talking to the Colossians here, one of the things that he actually addresses is that they're made perfect in Christ, which has to do with spiritual maturity, but also holiness and righteousness. And he says, it doesn't come from all these practices you're now trying to go back to, That ultimately doesn't control that or cause spiritual maturity. What ultimately does is the fact that you are made perfect in Christ. Look at verses 28 and 29. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says, For this purpose also I labor. That's that second word for, you know, Paul basically says that he suffered. Now he says, I even labor. I labored for this purpose, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. What purpose was Paul struggling for or laboring for here? admonishing every man and teaching every man so that they could be perfect or mature or complete in Christ. Paul wasn't satisfied with people just getting saved. He wanted them mature. And so he worked at that. It's just really, if you look at the words, teaching, admonishing, that's discipleship. What did Jesus say about the Great Commission? Did he say, go out and just save people? No, he says, teach them what? To obey everything I've commanded. The Great Commission isn't just evangelism. It's discipleship. Jesus wants mature believers. Not just saved believers. I've shared this before. Earl Rodmacher, don't just get saved and stuck. You know? And so what Paul is dealing with here is just that. But he, he makes this interesting statement. Every man, which would include women, obviously. Every man complete in Christ. I'm going to read a couple of passages here. But before I do that, this word that's used here, teleos, actually refers to something which is perfect, whole, 
complete. It can be used of maturity. Paul uses it that way when it comes to maturity elsewhere. Listen to just these verses. You don't have to look them up, but Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. That's the same exact word. Be mature in your thinking. He goes on in Philippians 3.15. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. saying, be mature in your thinking. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. <laughs> but because of, or for um, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So in that case, being mature, being this word, complete or perfect, has to do with being able to understand the difference between good and evil, to be discerning. And so, in some respects, what Paul is referring to here is that his goal was to teach and to admonish every man in Christ so that they might be mature in Christ. However, notice what Paul says. That they might present every man complete in Christ. It's interesting because... What he's talking about there is not just teaching so that men and women might be mature, but this idea that Paul's goal was to be able to present the Colossians and those Gentiles that he worked with, present them before God, perfect, holy, righteous, and just before God. That was the ultimate goal. It wasn't just maturity here on earth but that they might ultimately stand before God, that they could be presented before God, perfect, holy, righteous in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That was God's goal. It's not just maturity here. It's that ultimately as we stand before Him, we would be holy just like Jesus and blameless just like Jesus before God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, if you jump back there. He's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order what? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He uses the same word there, present. Ephesians 5.27 Jesus might present to himself the church in all, his glo- or in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. That is the goal. Holy, blameless, perfect, complete. And that happens because we are in Christ. And so Paul, as he talks about his laboring here, his difficulty, the goal was ultimately twofold. He wanted maturity here, but he ultimately the goal was to be able to take the Colossians and present them before Christ, before God, perfect, holy, righteous, and just. And that only happens because they were in Christ. That was the mystery that we are now perfect and holy in Christ. That's why we can approach God. That's why we can stand before Him and not be fearful of judgment. And so Paul labored for that. The Colossians had forgotten that. They were trying to find other ways to be holy, perfect, righteous, and just. We talked about Hank Hanegraaff in our introduction on how it wasn't enough with his faith in Christ because what he needed was the sacraments and other things provided by the church that he's now a part of, which is that process of theosis, being made like Christ that comes through three phases and participating in these sacraments, that that is ultimately what perfects us. Not Christ, 
In fact, remember, even one of the, the, the beliefs in the Greek Orthodox Church is that it isn't your faith and not even the faith of the priest that makes their sacraments work. It's just that they're sacraments of the church. How do you become holy, perfect, and righteous, and just without having faith in Christ? Paul says it's an impossibility. But in the Greek Orthodox Church, it's just did you get the sacrament? The Colossians had fallen into a very similar trap, trying to get that completeness, that perfection, through these other practices. They had forgotten, as Paul reminds them here, that you are complete in Christ. What's our takeaway? Paul was willing to make his life's purpose and labor the mystery of Christ because the only thing that makes it possible for us to be perfected, for us to be holy and righteous and just, in fact, even in the short term, the only thing that allows us to be mature is remembering that we are complete in Christ. You want to be mature here? You want to overcome your flesh here? Search for it in Christ. Not through these disciplines now or these other things we find in spiritual formation and everything else that we supposedly should do that somehow no it's in Christ the author of the book of Hebrews declares the inability of things like the law or religious practices including sacrifices etc to do any of that he says they can never make perfect those who draw near the author of Hebrews condemns religious practices designed to make us perfect Because he says they can't do that. Only Christ can. Submission to him. The author of Hebrews concludes in chapter 10 by saying, By one offering, he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Christ perfected. And as we all know, that there's always sort of a dual element to some of this stuff. There's the fact that Christ has already perfected us in his holiness and righteousness, but he is still perfecting us (laughs) as we're here. It's a both and. And so Christ continues to transform us into his likeness, perfecting us through our obedience in Christ, not through these structured religious practices that are supposed to make us perfect. But he ultimately will perfect us so that at that moment we stand before Christ, we are perfect, complete, holy, righteous, and just standing before God because of what Christ did. And so Paul labored for that. Let's move on to his third point regarding this mystery Paul he says struggled mightily for the mystery of Christ because in Christ are found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge not only is our hope of glory found in him not only is our completeness found in him but now all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him as well read chapter 2 1 through 3 for I want you to know how great a struggle that's the third word Paul uses to describe his work How great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now remember we said Paul likely had never met these people. Epiphras had brought them to Christ. But Paul had a heart for them and so he's now writing to them. That their hearts, verse 2, may be encouraged having been knit together in love attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. Paul says here that he struggled so that they might have a full assurance of understanding, 
true wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That was his goal. And again, that was important to them. That's what they wanted. They thought that through some of these mystical practices they mentioned here, the visions they had and the worship of angels, one of the things that we understand about Greco-Roman thought was that through these mystical visions, through these, the worship of angels and these beings that would communicate to them, Something else they believed was that by things like fasting, they would receive direct revelation from these gods, and through those practices, would have all these wonderful visions of knowledge and understanding, and it would make them so much smarter than those around them. And Paul is challenging, and he's saying, No, <laughs> I labor and strive that you might understand God's mystery, Christ, because in Him, all the wisdom and knowledge you're seeking is found in one place. It's found in Him. In Him. Complete understanding. True knowledge. It's all found in God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a pretty important word, all. I find it interesting that so oftentimes we want to separate spiritual wisdom and understanding completely and separate it from everything else all other forms of wisdom and knowledge and you can't do that scripturally all means all in this case if Paul wanted to say oh just all spiritual wisdom he would have said just spiritual wisdom but he doesn't say that look at verses 4 and 5 I say this so nobody would delude you with persuasive argument for even though I am absent in body nevertheless I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ he wanted them to remain stable in Christ which meant They had to look for their wisdom and understanding in Christ. When you lose sight of that, you become unstable in your faith. I have seen people who have shipwrecked their faith by starting to follow and look for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in other places other than Christ. Paul tells us, I think it's 1 Timothy, that it shipwrecks faith. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Which is true. The fear of the Lord. Which now in hindsight includes placing faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says that men become futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts when they become darkened when they no longer glorify God or give him thanks. Like I said, people always try to separate spiritual wisdom from other forms of wisdom and knowledge. But you know it's interesting? You look back at history... Let's just look at one subject, science. The greatest minds in science throughout history have always been men of faith. In almost every field. I went through a while back, I thought about bringing it up this morning, but a list of, of almost 30 different scientific fields and the Christian names behind some of the greatest advancements in that field in history. Now, that doesn't mean you can open the Bible and get a you know, description of particle physics or anything else. Okay? But, when you understand the creator behind those things, that's where real wisdom and understanding comes from. Same thing with medicine. Have you ever wondered why so many of our hospitals are started by churches? Because they have a passion to serve people, but so many of your medical advancements in history have been done by people who love the Lord. Not every single one, but real wisdom and understanding for anything starts with a comprehension of who God is, and that only comes through one place, Jesus Christ, because He... God chose to reveal himself to us in Christ. The other thing that we find is that when we love Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we also learn to love and accept what's written here. And really this is probably one of the greatest books of wisdom and knowledge ever written. So Paul says that all wisdom and knowledge 
It's all hidden in Christ. And because of that, he was willing to struggle, as he says here. So as we think about all these things, as we think about what the Colossians were struggling with, it's a struggle that many face today as well. We forget that our hope of glory is found in Christ. We forget that our perfection, our holiness, is all found in Him. And instead, we try to pursue it maybe through other means. We sometimes forget that to truly understand almost anything, it has to start with understanding Christ, understanding who God is, and appreciating what He's written and revealed to us here. Everything that we'll see in this book, as I've said from the beginning, is all about what we have in Christ. And so as Paul addresses this mystery of Christ, (laughs) gets their attention. You want to know about great mysteries and wisdom and knowledge? It's all found in God's greatest mystery, which is Christ. It's because Christ is in you that you have the hope of glory. It's because you have been made complete in Christ that you can stand before God, perfect, holy, righteous, and just. And it's because you are in Christ that you're able to understand the great mysteries of God. Amen?